Hi everyone. Welcome to the Good Tech Fest podcast. My name is Genevieve Smith, and I'm excited to be back guest hosting another episode. I hope social impact organizations align their data and data practices to their missions. Nothing is neutral, so the way we understand and interact with our data will always reflect some set of values, and it takes intentional work to make sure that they're the values that support our missions. Today's episode is a conversation with Rebecca Ray. Rebecca is Hickoria Apache, and she's a research lecturer at the University of New Mexico's College of Population Health. She's an indigenous scholar, and her expertise spans over 16 years implementing community-based participatory research projects and indigenous participatory evaluation in partnership with tribal communities. Her primary areas of research include indigenous research methodologies and participatory evaluation with indigenous communities. She works closely with multiple tribal community members to mentor, strengthen, and enhance community members' skills, from program development to data practices to evaluation. She's also served as an evaluator to tribal nonprofit organizations, tribal programs, and national foundations. She has 15 years of experience in positive youth leadership development, specifically serving as senior faculty with the Leadership Institute Summer Policy Academy, a program that educates indigenous high school students on American Indian history, federal Indian law, policy, and advocacy. So in our conversation today, we talk about indigenous data sovereignty, being caretakers of data and knowledge, and how folks can support this work. I hope you enjoy. Rebecca. Hello, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for joining me and us on the podcast today. Thank you for the invitation. It's really an honor to be here today. It's been an honor. The brief conversations we've had so far have been an honor for me. So I'm really excited that we get to share that with the Good Tech Fest crew. Um, So to start, I would just love a brief intro, you know, who you are, how you got to where you are, and also what what feeds you and brings you joy? Oh, great questions. So um, my name is Rebecca Ray. I prefer just to go by Becca Ray. People seem to call me by my full name because it just seems to flow really good. Becca Ray just kind of goes together. So <laughs> um, Becca Ray, um, Hickory Apache. Um, my homelands are in northern New Mexico. Um, from the small town of Dulce, New Mexico. It's where my family resides, where I grew up, um, which I still call home. Um, I go up at least once or twice a month, but I currently reside in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I've been here in Albuquerque um, going on 20 years. So came to grad school back in the early 2000s um, with the intentions of not really knowing what my intentions were just to get my degree, right? And so um, finished my master's program in community regional planning and um, water resources. And while I was finishing my grad um, program, I got a graduate research assistant position in the, at the time was the master's of public health um, program here at UNM. So I work at the University of New Mexico, but started as a graduate student um, 
that was working and getting my degree in planning and water resources and then fell into public health <laughs> kind of have been in this space now for um, over 16 years and so as a grad student I was blessed in terms of working with uh, my colleague that hired me who's now my colleague who at the time was my boss um, was working had multiple research projects um, here and working with tribes here in New Mexico. So it was like, for me, that was like a blessing because, I, you know, as an eager grad student, um, getting, you know, work experience to be able to find a position as a grad student to get paid, but also to get the experience, right, as, a, as you're coming into your work um, professional life um, as school was ending, um, to be able to work with communities and with meaningful projects. And so really got engaged in doing community-based participatory research um, and kind of this is how I fell into also doing evaluation. And so didn't really think when I was in grad school that I would be considering myself a researcher and an evaluator. And 16 years later, that's, I guess, how I define my position in terms of the work that I do. But I've been blessed because I've been able to work with communities um, throughout my journey of work. And I think learning alongside communities and my growth as well in my professional career has really helped establish who I am as a person, but also the meaning and the passion behind why I do the work that I'm doing. Because I always knew I wanted to continue to work, even if I'm not working in my own community, that I'm still working with tribal communities um, here in New Mexico. And so that's been like the blessing um, in terms of my professional development. Um, so I guess um, like don't know how much more in depth I need to get into that, but it's really, uh, yeah, we've had a lot of families. So one of our, one of my projects that I really, when I was in my starting career, which is pretty amazing because we're still working with the same three communities that we were working with when I started as a graduate student, it was to develop a family strengthening program. So it was in like our piloting phase of what this family strengthening program could um, look like in each of the communities, three different tribal communities, um, really centered on um, developing um, what was important for the communities. And a lot of that was really centered in um, culture and language and identity, community history um, as part of, um, and then tying in some of the life skills of communications and, you know, anger management and, you know, just everyday learnings of, you know, what, what strengthens families. Um, and so that's really that project. And now we're in, we've come from different researches into, uh, now we're in our, um, nearly 20 years later, have a huge R01 dissemination grant where we're um, bringing in three new communities to be able to um, strengthen this work around. And so part of that was also part of my development and learning, um, but also centered around evaluation as well, too, because you really need that data to help support right the work that you're doing. We went through a previous R01 where we were trying to test the effectiveness of this curriculum so that way we could share with more communities and what, what is required as part of that process, right? And working and then also training our community partners uh, and them also training us in the work that we're doing as well too, because they're really the, the leaders in the work that they're doing in their communities and the um, really the experts of what it, what it takes to facilitate. Um, I've also been fortunate enough to work alongside with this national leadership. Um, it was a, um, Healthy Native Communities Fellowship. And so it was training Indigenous 
um, tribal leaders, uh, our community members throughout Indian country here in the United States around different leadership styles um, and how to strengthen um, their own ways of doing work in their community, but really centered from community engaged efforts. And so how are we bringing people together to really support the work that's happening in our communities? And so we're not doing work in silos that we're all coming together. So I was fortunate to be able to kind of in my early years work alongside that, um, that program. And I was serving as the evaluator and I was learning as I was going because I was never ever really trained as an evaluator, but I was learning by doing. Um, and I'm thankful I learned along that particular project because it was really centered in community engaged processes, right? And so when we started to think about data and how we're collecting data and how we're gathering data and analyzing data, you know, we definitely we're thinking about it from these community engaged efforts as well too. So we're bringing people into this space. And so we're not just taking data from them, right? But they're part of the process from the beginning in terms of thinking through what are ways that we can be asking these questions? What are different kinds of processes that we can be thinking about as, as part of our collection of data too? And so it doesn't have to be so um, from an, like an extractive process, but it's from a collective process in, in terms of how we're thinking about data. And so I think that really helped shape my way of thinking with regards to working with community and having them be very engaged. And so I guess I'm not a traditional evaluator though, um, in, in the sense of thinking about biases. I come in owning my biases. <laughs> and I think that's really important. Um, and, and part of the training that we do as well, too, is why shouldn't we have a voice in this work that we're doing? And why shouldn't we bring, why shouldn't we not be bringing our partners? into a conversation as data, you know, experts as well, too, as part of that conversation, as part of the um, collectors, but also the um, creators of what we're collecting too, right? So it doesn't have to necessarily just come from the evaluator's perspective, but we're bringing in the voices from the folks who are actually doing the work on the ground, right? They're connected to the, and so embedded in the work and so embedded in working with um, their community and their participants or whatever the program may be, right? And so it's so important to have them at the space of when we're thinking about creating questions or creating different ways of how we're thinking about what do we want to learn, right? And that's really what evaluation comes to is like, what are we trying to learn and what are we trying to uplift and how is that important? And when you um, kind of take away the stigma of evaluation, <laughs> Because there's a huge stigma when it comes to evaluation. People, you know, throw that word out and, you know, already there's a um, can be a already a sense of people backing up, like feeling like, oh, you know, evaluation, you're here to evaluate me. And it's like, no, we're here. You know, so when we can think about how do we celebrate our learnings and how do we celebrate what we're learning from one another um, and the accomplishments too, right? And then, you know, and also the challenges are important to understand uh, because then those are the things we learn from too as part of strengthening um, the work moving forward. So yeah. I think I guess all of that to some degree brings me joy <laughs> in, my, in its sense. I don't know. Yeah. Um, oh, wow. um, with communities, I, I really, I think 
it's why I've been able to stay at in the university for as long as I have is because I'm my work is really connected to community folks and working with folks in the community and working with tribal communities and learning from them. I mean, they've been some of my greatest teachers um, in this work. And I'm so thankful to all of my partners um, that I've had the honor to learn from and learn with uh, along the way. So that definitely brings me joy along with my family and my, um, I was just home this past weekend and I got to see my niece's baby. And so the new babies that are, are the next generation coming up is also things that bring me joy. <laughs> mm, I just, nobody can see our video, but I know I feel like I'm just beaming, uh, being able to to hear you speak on all of that. And one thing I heard you say a ton of is learning from and with community. And I think evaluation does have a stigma and it's kind of earned it. Um, yeah. I think many yeah. people uh, will be able to get in contact with me after the podcast if, if that is an upsetting uh, idea. But I think so often evaluation practices are really inherited from practices from anthropology, which are it's fundamentally colonial, fundamentally extractive, fundamentally violent. Um, and in in hearing you speak about not only learning from and with alongside community, but celebrating our learnings, we don't talk about that in the evaluation field. Wow. After action reviews are not exciting. Learning, reflection, these are words that can immediately people on the call or or in the conference room, you know, there can be rolling eyes or people's body language changes because it can feel like surveillance and it can in it can also feel like um, we just have to do it for the funder, right? We don't actually have any say in what the after action review is, or we don't even know this evaluator who's coming in and quote unquote evaluating us. So there's a ton there. But one thing I really want to reflect on before I ask you the, the first question um, is that celebration of learning. I think that's so powerful and so, so new. Yeah. Um, because we also tend to, in this space, in the evaluation space, in the data for good space, we focus on trauma and we focus on where things were really hard, which is important. Mm -hmm. um, but we, it makes it so we don't have those celebrations and we don't look for the joy in our data or our stories. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's something that I just, I, I'm sitting with and I want to invite folks listening to really sit with that mm -hmm. um, and don't let that pass by. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, my first question sort of to set the stage here for folks who maybe are not uh, as familiar with some of the ideas that, that you've been working on for a long time. And this was one of the reasons that you and I got in touch was you've been doing some work on indigenous data sovereignty, mm -hmm. which I would just love to hear from you. You know, how would you define that? How do you think about it? What, you know, kind of what's What's the description for folks maybe who have no idea what that means? Yeah, thank you for saying that. And I really appreciate you bringing in and saying indigenous data sovereignty as well, too, because I think oftentimes people say data sovereignty, which there is a whole terminology around that. But if we're centering it in the context of working with indigenous people, it's very important to have that indigenous in front of the data sovereignty, right? Because then that makes it really specific to um 
Indigenous people and, and our rights. And so there's um, folks down at, um, and I, I'm blessed that I, about over five years ago, I was invited to participate in a space um, and learn alongside some folks who had already been leading the groundwork around Indigenous data sovereignty um, down at the Native Nations Institute at the University of Arizona. And so there's a core group of folks down there, um, in addition to some other um, Indigenous folks up in Northern, um, in Montana, um, as well as folks in um, New Zealand with the Maori um, and Ayotora, um, who are really in, in, in Australia. So it's really a, an international co um, component as well, too. Um, when we think about Indigenous, we're thinking of Indigenous folks from um, Canada, from Australia, um, New Zealand, but you know, in other parts, South America, Central America. So really that terminology can be really universal in that context. And so folks there had really done a lot of work in defining what indigenous state of sovereignty is. And so it's really beautiful to see that there's a lot of, um, if you were to type in Google and put in indigenous state of sovereignty, you will find a lot of really scholarly articles and free resources. And I'm happy to share some free resources as well too. We can put some links on, but um, some of the definitions that they have kind of defined and that we have been sharing as part of some of the work that we're doing with our trainings is bringing in um, some of the experts who have been teaching on this um, is really the right of indigenous people and nations to govern the collection, ownership and application of their own data. So in its most simplistic um, definition, that's really kind of what indigenous state of sovereignty is. It's like how are, how are our own people um, being the caretakers, the collectors, the um, owners and users of our own data, right? Because again, historically, it has been from a colonial context, you know, been a very extractive process, right? In terms of keeping track of um, the number of people, which is kind of part of the census <laughs> census piece of it, but also for us as indigenous people, as indigenous people was connected to a lot of how we were identified and um, which is connected to our blood quantum as well too. So like that's also a whole kind of can get into a really um, political context as well. And so the um, processes of how data was collected uh, on our people without us being part of that, right, is that historical piece that we're um, working to redefine for ourselves, right? And so we're really at a space of being the own creators um, and the data collectors and the owners. And, you know, part of that is also teaching that we have been this, we have been data collectors in our communities for generations, you know, that this isn't a new form, um, maybe from, <laughs> I guess, in the scientific colonial process, right? <laughs> it's new, but you know, when we talk about our communities and our history of our communities, we've always been data um, collectors. We've always been scientists. We've always been geologists. We've always been, you know, um, connected to astrology. All of that's rooted in a lot of our um, creation stories. It's rooted in our um, it was, you know, also just connected to our survival, right? We needed to have our own data collection methods of being able to plan for the year of, you know, with just food and 
keeping track of the stars and winters and um, water and, and things. And so those are really inherent to our survival as Indigenous people. And so it's just kind of taking a step back and reminding ourselves of that too, right? Like, is this isn't foreign to us, right? That we've always been in this space of, of having data um, be a a driver, I guess, in our in our communities of, of planning, right? You know, data is used also for planning. You know, and today we data policy is driven by data, um, and so uh, programs are driven by data. And so when we look at the history of our people, um, we've also you know data in different contexts were also was driven by data too. <laughs> and so one of um our one of my colleagues and friends who was one of our um, as part of our Tribal Data Champions Fellowship initiative that I co-created with some colleagues and that are implementing one of our previous fellows with her organization, and, and she's become the evaluator for her organization, which is a nonprofit organization. They um, introduced like evaluation and working with the groups as well, too. And so this is a question that she poses. So I'm going to shout out Renee Goldtooth um, because she asked, she poses this question. And so we like to think about that as like, you know, how, you know, what are ways, what ways did your ancestors collect data? You know, and so on bringing in. So she works with, they work with youth, a lot of youth programming. And so just even having that conversation now with youth is already starting to plant that seed in, like reminding them that, like, you know, well, what are ways that your ancestors collected data? What are ways that our ancestors have collected data so that we, we're connected to it? So it doesn't become such a foreign, um, it's not seen as something that's foreign, but that's something that's always been in our communities. And so it's just kind of that reminder that doesn't have to feel intimidating and it doesn't need to be an intimidating process. And so how do we center ourselves back into thinking about that way in those ways that makes sense for us, right? And so it's important to have this, you know, um, it's important to have data um, it's part of protecting our rights to our lands as well, too. It's protecting our rights to our resources, um, protecting our own traditions and roles and responsibilities. And so these are all different things that are part of that Indigenous state of sovereignty and how uh, protecting our um, human rights and can be used in court cases, you know. And so all of that is so important when we think about data and how it's being collected um, that we're in the driver's seats, right? So that we're the storytellers for our own, um, I guess, telling the story forward, but also telling the story back as well, right? And so instead of having people tell, which historically, right, we have people coming in and telling our own history for us. Again, back to your comment earlier about anthropology, you know, you can come into pretty much any indigenous community in the United States and there's probably, uh, anthropology, either research paper or a book where they were collecting, you know, our historical stories and stuff. And it's like, you know, how do we, you know, we've always been our own storytellers and we need to make sure that we continue to be the storytellers um, that for the things that are important to us um, moving forward. Uh, so that's a long-winded answer. Oh, no, it's beautiful. Well, and I was just about to say, every time you speak, I just want to pause and, and take it all in. Um, so several, several things, but it it also sounds like 
like really humanizing and making accessible these data skills that I think we tend to, especially white folks, especially when I say we, and I'm, I'm talking about me and my, my ancestors, um, but we tend to sort of fetishize these skills. Like, you know, you've got to be like a certain, you have to have a certain education or you have to come from a certain place or you have to have a certain income or look a certain way mm-hmm. to be able to do this work which is a huge problem in not only in the nonprofit world, but in STEM and mathematics. And, you know, anytime we start to talk about numbers, uh, women, um, people of color and gender queer folks tend to shrink and say, well, that's not mine. Or somebody else in the room suggests that, right? Uh, And this idea that, you know, these, your community and, and different communities that you work with have been telling stories and using data and information forever yeah this is not new um and that that i think is really huge because even just practically speaking if we're thinking about who's getting the capacity building grants for what Mm -hmm. these are such important lenses to be thinking about this in because i think it's really easy um for you know like I'm just thinking about this example right now because I live in Brooklyn, New York, um, and a lot of foundations based in New York City will go to rural communities and say, well, you need capacity building to even start to do these things. When often it's, no, we've got the skills, the skills Mm -hmm. exist. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's something that I just, I really wanted to to highlight there. Um, And a word that you said fairly early on um, was, was being caretakers of the data. And that I think highlights this really human and intimate and emotional connection that we have with our information, whether we admit it or not. Yeah. Um, and I just, I wanted to to circle back on that for a moment. Um, yeah. And I think that's so important, especially for, you know, as indigenous people, you know, a lot of our um, data is really centered in narrative right? And so we work a lot around storytelling and, you know, we see that as gifting, right? And we talk, you talk about when people share their knowledge, they're gifting you that, right? And so how do you caretake when people are sharing such important, you know, knowledge that has been either passed down to them from generations, right? And that's how, you know, historically, um, a lot of our our knowledge has been from uh, oral history, right? And so it, it needed to be, right? It needed to have that continuing talking about it, the re- repetition of these stories being told so that they're being told for generations and being practiced for generations. And so, you know, along with, you know, colonization coming in and kind of disrupting that process, right? There's a lot of this reemergence and revitalizing of our own cultures within our communities and the language being revitalized in a lot of communities and for communities that have a really strong, um, and and there is, there's still a lot of indigenous communities that have a really strong um, high um, fluency level in their communities. And so it's the retention, right? So it's not just about revitalization, it's the retention of those languages. Um, And so when we're, when, our 
community partners are centered in some of this work that is really around culture and, and wanting to learn from elders or even just learn from the younger generation too, because it's not just to say that um, the elders are the ones that carry all the knowledge. We have a lot of teachings in our community that our young ones are also a lot of those bearers of knowledge and teachers of knowledge too, right? And they um, can pass that on. And so whoever is gifting this knowledge to you, how are we caretaking that and protecting it in a way that, um, but is also useful too, right? So it's not just protecting it and honing it. We want it to be useful for the community. And, and that's some of the learnings that I've heard from elders as well too. It's like, if I'm going to sit here and share this knowledge with you, I want to make sure that it's being shared with, you know, our younger generation, our parents, our, um, how is this going to be useful? I don't want to just share my knowledge just for sharing. I want it to be uh, uplifting and useful for the folks that are, it's going to be used towards, right? And so how do we become those caretakers and understanding uh, of that? But also for folks who are sharing sensitive information, also taking a step back. And if they don't want that shared, right? And then how are we protecting their voices as well too? So it's that, it's again, that balance. Um, and you don't really um, build that you have that's where the trust comes and the relationship building is so important as well as part of being an evaluator um, and researcher as well too because I'm also a researcher and so they kind of go hand in hand in that sense it's we're building trust and relationships and so even though I'm an indigenous person um, working in indigenous communities I'm also working in indigenous communities that aren't my own right and so people are sharing their knowledge with me, how am I caretaking and being and holding their wisdom in a responsible way that, um, and when I'm interpreting them, if I don't have those folks at the table from their community, helping me understand that data, helping me interpret from their own cultural views and lenses, then I'm going to be missing probably something highly important that because it's not my community, right? And so if we don't bring folks in from the community to be part of that, <laughs> um, from even from the data, like I said, from the creation too, because I could be asking an inappropriate question that right could be very triggering for someone as well if I don't know the community norms. And um, so it's just building that trust and, re and relationships and respect. And, you know, and that's how we um, think about being caretakers of the data. Um, and, but, you know, it's not my responsibility if it's not my community to be that caretaker, right? And so that's where you need to bring in folks from the community because then they're part of that process of being their own caretakers of, of that. And so building that um, yeah, I don't like to say building capacity either. I like to say enhancing capacity because it's already there, right? We're just helping to enhance people's um, and understanding because it's already there. Folks are already doing this work. How are we just enhancing what they're already doing, right? And helping to provide um, different tools to the toolbox is the way I see it, right? Everyone always comes to the table with their own tools. And so, but you could always use an extra <laughs> hammer or whatever it is, right? If you're thinking about building a house, or right? you always need something, you need an extra screw or whatever. And so whatever tools that people already have, we're just helping to bring, no, no, helping them to um, build more tools into their toolbox. That's it.
Yeah, that's it's so lovely. And it's, you know, trust is such a huge piece of that. And I also hear respect mm-hmm. and respect and humility that when we are walking into room A, should we be in those rooms? Yeah. Uh, that's an important question. And and B, admitting that we don't know <laughs> that we the whole reason we're here is because, you know, I may have a hammer that doesn't work as well for the thing that we're doing. Um, and somebody may have a, like the most expensive, really effective hammer, but they're not fun to be around. So it's really hard to be on the job site. Right. Um, and so, yeah, hearing that, that trust and that respect and that humility and, and like what you mentioned in the beginning of the call, um, knowing that you've got biases, everybody's got biases. It's not coming in totally, totally cold, totally blank. Um, and that can really just as as you use the language of, of enhancement, that can enhance the entire um, sort of collective as well. So I, I really appreciate that language around enhancing capacity as well. It's already here. Uh, we're not, if if I'm an evaluator, if I'm a consultant, I'm not inherently better or more well-equipped than anybody else. Um, so all of that is just, it's really powerful and lovely and so applicable. We're not talking about a software. We're not talking about some framework that's really expensive, right? This is this is communicate with your community and and be humble and know know where you are and and how to um, sort of interact with people with with compassion and grace. Yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, I think I I would love to talk to you for hours, but um, I I want to start to to wrap us up here and and I think you know speaking of that kind of practical application, right? These are, they're really practical steps here. And, um, you know, given that this is the Good Tech Fest podcast, and there are lots of different folks in this community, um, and lots of tech and data folks, as well as, you know, funders and and some of these larger decision makers, when we think about how data get handled and what the incentives are. Um, So yeah, I would just, I would love to hear from you, kind of, if you've got suggestions for, the people moving money around and deciding on what the conditions are for that money to move around. Um, you know, what, what could they do to further support, facilitate, fund this work? Yeah, I think, well, I guess I will shout out the WK Kellogg Foundation because they've been a foundation that has supported one of um, the grants or one of the so I mentioned earlier, I am a co-creator and um, co-lead on the Tribal Data Champions Fellowship. And so just to give a little background, it's a year-long fellowship that we're um, training tribal community members um, in data. And so we're really leading them through this um, year-long process of evaluation from the beginning to the end, right? And so really kind of guiding them from where do you even start when you're thinking about evaluation um, all the way into, you know, like from theory of change, logic model development, you know, creating a work plan, what are the different evaluation plans, you know, learning about qualitative data, quantitative data, um, indigenous data sovereignty, but we do this really throughout the whole year centered in indigenous ways of knowing. And so we kind of have our own um, curriculum, um, uh, which follows an evaluation timeline, 
but we really center a lot of it from our own indigenous ways of knowing um, and centering it in indigenous valuations lens. And so everything is coming from our own worldviews and thinking um, and strengthening and building off of um, sharing knowledge from indigenous scholars, indigenous evaluators. And so that's really kind of building this network of uh, more indigenous evaluators, hopefully in our communities, right? And so, but also just having more people feel more comfortable with data. And I think that's also really important as part of indigenous data sovereignty, right? You have to have more people in your community understanding and feeling comfortable with data, knowing um, the differences in the different types of data, right? So we use a lot of this um, Western types of language when we talk about data. So using these big words and statistical significance and, you know, leading them through all of that, even though they may not necessarily need to do that for their own particular program, but building the skill set so that when our folks are in these types of settings um, and research settings or any conferences and they hear these words, that their understanding of it um, but also can have that pushback too, right? And so, <laughs> and I think that's important for like funders as well too, because funders come in and they want to support communities and probably have really good intentions about what they want to support. But if you're also not helping to support the way communities want to collect their data or what's important for them in terms of what they want to highlight, then you're not going to be in alignment with what you're going to want to see as part of what's being celebrated for <laughs> their findings, right? Because what's important to the communities in terms of findings or results or, you know, what's going to be important may not necessarily align with what the funders are wanting. And that's where we see a lot of tensions between what I hear from the folks that I work in the communities, right? Like these are the questions the funders are wanting to ask us, but that's not really the data we want to collect. <laughs> you know, like that's not important to us. And so I think there has to be this conversation with the funders and building that strengthening that relationship that yes, yes, you're supporting communities with your dollars, which a lot of, you know, grassroots, nonprofits, tribal run programs are very appreciative and support, you know, thankful for. But if you're not finding that middle ground, then in terms of being able to report the findings back, right, or finding what's important for communities in terms of um, where do they see are their strengths and where do they see as um, what's important for data collection, then you're missing the ball, you know, you're missing the whole, you're missing, you know, there's just, you're dropping the ball, I should say, you're dropping the ball in terms of finding that um, space of learning, right? And that's really what it should be. Evaluation should really be this co-learning space. Um, and so if, if funders don't want to be flexible in terms of thinking about what's important to capture for them, but also what's really important for community folks in terms of um, running programs at the community level and asking questions um, of community members. <laughs> it's oftentimes probably not in alignment, right? And so these questions that some funders may want um, may just not be in alignment with ways and appropriate ways to even ask any, any of our community folks as well too. So I think there needs to be a space of learning there, um, but also I think a space of being able to support more um, 
enhancement of evaluation of community programs as well, right? I think um, oftentimes in a lot of the nonprofits that I've worked with, you know, they barely have enough funding to just support their staff to run program. And then you want them to do this really high level evaluation. They don't even have the an evaluator on their payroll, right? And so it's like they're barely making the funds that they need to run the program and provide services to whoever they're providing service to, right? Because they work with different organizations at so many different levels, but um, whoever are the receivers of their services, that's priority, right? And so like, how do they even try to kind of tighten while they may find evaluation is important to them? If there's three people in their nonprofit and they're running <laughs> three different programs, <laughs> providing services to an excellent amount of people, right? Like where's their time to be able to even put the time into evaluation, right? And so part of that budgeting um, that funders support should also really support evaluation as well too, because sometimes they give them maybe 5% of a budget, <laughs> if that, right? To support evaluation. And some don't even provide any dollars for evaluation, right? And so it just, I think for funders to be really cognizant of that is super important and to really be having these conversations with um What's, what's important for the communities and, and that space of co-learning because it creates a mutual ground that can be learning for both the organizations um, as well as the funders. Um, and so if that they continue to see that friction, <laughs> it doesn't really benefit anybody, right? <laughs> and so, yeah, so I think that's um, some of the learnings I've had um, and thankful to be working with a program officer with the Kellogg Foundation that recognizes some of that and understanding um, some of the pushback that we've been um, advocating for in terms of data, um, but also respecting organizations' right to not share their data either. Right. And I think that's then that's part of indigenous data sovereignty is like it's we're the owners of this data. Um, and we'll share with you what's important. Um, but we're also not going to share things that we feel are important for us, but not necessarily for you. And that's mm -hmm. important. too. So, <laughs> yeah. And so much of that goes back to that respect and that trust. And, you know, and I also, you know, in hearing you talk about all of this, I also wonder what the world would look like if. Um, if we didn't have to signal that we knew about statistical significance or qualitative and quantitative methods to be able to push back. And so I think there's also an invitation here for funders to think about money tends to, no matter how much we've got the language down about trust-based philanthropy and unrestricted funds, like all of that is fantastic. And there's been a lot of really incredible movement in that space. But I think in, in really thinking about is this power with or power over, thinking about our types of power um, can be really helpful with that as well. And it also brings me back to that idea of caretaking. Mm -hmm. If we are giving somebody a results spreadsheet to fill out every quarter that doesn't actually reflect them, yeah. and if there's no room for them to say no, uh, is that actually caretaking? And so I think it's also an opportunity for funders and, and you know, even technical assistance partners to yeah. to really check where they believe their power is coming from. Yeah. I think that's really huge too. 
Yeah. And I think that's important for funder, um, foundations that have a lot of money to provide technical assistance to a lot of their grantees or, you know, um, who they're um, giving money to providing a space within their own organization to provide technical assistance because you're coming in with the assumption that a lot of these organizations have that evaluation capacity to do it. And oftentimes they, and it's, you know, and they assume that they don't want to do it, right? And there's that assumption and that's not in the work that I've worked with a lot of different nonprofits and just small organizations. That's not the case. They want to know how they're making a difference. They want to know where their learnings, I mean, because they're doing such amazing work, right? They want that celebrated. They want to be contributors to that space of knowledge sharing, right? Because they're learning and they're doing some amazing amazing work they just don't have the time or resources and so that's a that's you know and that's unfortunately just it's not an excuse that's just the reality and that you know and so I think for funders to really um, have some understanding of that is super important and and I definitely push for um, them having some technical assistance as part of of, of that funding are within their own um, organizations as funders. <laughs> Philanthropy is how are they supporting um, nonprofits or organizations in their own evaluation work. Super important. Yeah. And there's a theme here just because a community or an organization looks a certain way, it's not because they chose it. We've got systems at work here. Yeah. Uh, so, so um, yeah. Thank you so much. For, for joining me today and, and sharing your knowledge and, and sharing space and um, and spending time with us. Is, is there anything else you want to add? Any last words that you want to make sure get said? Uh, just, I guess, just thankful to all of my, um, everyone that I've worked with, all my community partners um, and, you know, and, fellows that I've trained and, and, you know, that have worked alongside with and just been in, you know, people that I've shared space with, like, I'm grateful that, you know, for all of their shared learning, that's, um, I'm able to be in a space to be able to talk about this, right? Like, this is such a co-learning um, place. And I think wherever we can celebrate co-learning, wherever we can create communities of practice, right, where we're learning together, sharing together, that's super important um, because that's how we continue to enhance each other's capacity. And so like this, let's be caretakers of of how we're working with one another and let's not continue to perpetuate extractive methods of data, um, particularly for communities that have been in these spaces of, of extracting for generations, right? And are vulnerable and um, have a continued to be in a space of having data used against them um, and to perpetuate a lot of the racism and white supremacy uh, actions. And so we wanna really think about for, I guess, folks in the good tech space and, and world is to really think about how are we using data to uplift our most vulnerable communities. Um, how are we? And that includes bringing those most vulnerable people to the spaces of being able to be those 
caretakers of the data, but also to be the people who are collecting the data, who are <laughs> analyzing the data. Make sure you have um, diverse folks at the table um, that so everyone's voices are represented because I think for speaking from an indigenous as an indigenous voice and a person who's training um, a lot of other indigenous folks in these spaces is that's the intent. We need more of our indigenous people at these tables so our voices are heard and so that data is being reflective of who we are um, from our own voice and not from people coming in outside collecting data on us and having that reported out. So we need to be at the table. Um, and so those are some of my final thoughts. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much again and for being so generous with your space and your time and your energy and your knowledge. Uh, and by way of you, your colleagues' knowledge and um, everything that has been co-learned so far. So we really appreciate it. Um, and folks, can check out the Indigenous Data Sovereignty Network. Um, just like Becca said in the very beginning, uh, to go check out a Google search. And, and this is really international work. This isn't just happening uh, in, in pockets. So we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for being happy to be here. <laughs> Bye. Thank you so much for joining us this week on the podcast. Please check out the Tribal Data Champions work that Rebecca mentioned on the Kellogg Foundation's website. You can also Google all of the different things that we talked about, but specifically Indigenous data sovereignty and um, talk to your colleagues, talk to your funders, find out what people are doing and how they're thinking about this work. Uh, and be sure to subscribe to the Good Tech Fest podcast and join us next week. Thank you. Thank you.